2: Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders.
1: Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Show 293. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show man, what a show. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have a New Zealand doubleheader. That's right, we have two authors. And both stories are up for the Julius Vogel Award. That's New Zealand's kind of highest honour in the kind of genre of fiction. First up though, there's a little promo by Dennis M. Lane all about sofa Con. Then next up is one of the main fictions, Paint by Numbers, by Dan Robots. Then we have a fact article by Jimmy Rogers, Synthetic Voices. Jimmy's delving into the world, or oh, this month's, all the audio fiction, genre fiction, telling you what's out there. Then the last main fiction is Better Phones, by Grant Stone. And both Dan and Grant, you yeah, will get this as well, narrate their own stories as well. So it's a kind of double-double bill. Dan has been on... Numerous times on all over in the District of Wonders, you know, with his narrations. And he's just an amazing, like I say, amazing writer as well for this Julius Vogel Award. Grant was the man, did the honour of going up for the Hugo Award in stop for Starship Sova when we won that award in 2010. And I'll forever be grateful for Grant for doing that as well. So, Grant, what can I say? A big thank you. Looking forward to this show. But first, big announcement, SovaCon. 2013, the very first online science fiction convention presented by Starship Sova. Tickets are on sale there now. Tickets went on sale as soon as this show hit the airwaves, the tubes, the pipes, whatever. So you can come over to the front of the website or you can go to SovaCon.org and get yourself a ticket. Tickets are £10, very limited. Hopefully there's going to be, it's going to sell out. Like you see, we've got some stunning guests there. Guest of Honour is Peter Watts. We've got Louis Macasta Bujol there as well, as like one of our special guests. We've got Ted Kazmatka reading from his new novel, Greg Frost. We've got Ian H. Sturges doing a looking back at genre history, all on science fiction conventions. Dennis doing a film talk and amazing stories. And then right at the end, we have science fiction quiz. Or right near the end, should I say. Science fiction quiz, the might. That is SF Signal takes on the skill of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Who will win that quiz? Only you will find out if you come over to SofaCon. Like I say, tickets are on sale. Just get there quick. Like I say, I'll put in a little note out on the, if anyone signed up for the newsletter. So the newsletter knows well. And I'm now starting to kind of flood the, the kind of Twitter and Facebook and Google Plus as well. Announcing that tickets are on sale. So you've got to be quick. So we'll play a little promo for SofaCon. Dennis, uh sir.
2: Imagine yourself as one of the crew of this faster-than-light spaceship of the future, sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. In
3: 1956, this vision of the future was...
2: United Planets
1: Cruiser C-57-D, J.J. Adams commanding
3: The giant saucer arrives at the planet Altair, searching for signs of a lost scientific mission. There, they encounter
1: Morbius of the Bellerophon
3: and his daughter, Altera, who is a
2: young, budding virgin, fair and and fresh and sweet. sweet.
3: Enough of that, Ariel. You weren't even in the film version. As I was saying... They meet Morbius' daughter, who was born on Altair and has met no one except her father. On the 28th of July, I'll be talking about this classic science fiction movie, which, if you haven't guessed, is Forbidden Planet, as part of the first ever SofaCon Live video on your computer. I'll be talking about the stars, how the film reached the screens, the musical adaptation and some of the other Shakespearean-themed science fiction movies that have hit the screens. So, log on to soficon.org to find out more, and remember.
1: There are more things in heaven and earth than I dreamt
2: of in my laboratory.
3: SOFICon 2013. Be there.
1: What can I am going to say, Dennis, looking forward to that. All these, oh, I was selling the show on his locks. All those grey, flowing locks. They've all gone. Cut. Finished. I hope you got that job, sir. Dennis, we're going to say a big thank you. So, first up, we'll play main fiction, or this is main fiction number one Paint by Numbers by Dan Rabatz. Now, I say it's up for the Julius Vogel Award, and Dan narrates the story. And if you don't know Mr. Young, Mr. Dan Rabatz, he's been. Basically, he's been kind of all over, you know, the District of Wonders with his great narrations. And I think it was actually Grant that read, uh, uh, Dan wrote an article that we played it on Starship Sofa, and I think it might have been Grant that narrated that article, if I'm minds right. And that's from then on, kicked Dan into kind of writing and everything. And look at him now, for the awards, wow. But... Dan Roberts is a New Zealand writer of fantasy, horror, science fiction and the odd things in between. He's also been known to seal things from here to there and fits his writing in around to, raising two wee miracles and carried on a day job at the cutting edge of New Zealand's film industry. Oh, I never knew that as well. Wow. The story was first published in issue 55 of Andromeda Spaceways In Flight magazine in the December 2012 edition. And his second piece in two years to make the final ballad in the category of short fiction for New Zealand's, like I say, coveted Julius, Sir Julius Vogel Award. His fiction can be found in anthologies Dreaming of the Din and Bloodstones and at Tales from the Archives and the Wiley Writers podcast. He's also stories forthcoming in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, online magazine, in Orioles magazine, and, his, and some anthologies, Regeneration, New Zealand speculative fiction number two. And there's also, you can see him in When the Hero Comes Home, volume two, due out in August from Dragon Moon Press. Most recently, he's had another story accepted for publication in Andromeda Spaceways, a collaboration with Starship Sofa regulars Matthew Sanborn-Smith and Grant Stone under the right name of Sebris. Now, I never bloody knew that. Man! His audio narrations, like I say, have been heard on Starship Sofa Crime City Central, Tales to Terrify and Protecting Project Pulp, amongst others. You can find him lurking around the web at danrabarts.com. So, like I say, Dan narrated this story as well. Starship Sova A is very proud to present. Paint by Numbers. Did I say paint by numbers the first time?
2: Paint by Numbers by Dan Robarts. Event. The fact of the blank canvas. Paint. Brushstroke. Texture. Light. No images. Not unless they arise unbidden half-imagined, in the mind of the viewer. Merely suggestions of time, place, as glimpsed through half lidded eyes, turned towards the sun, or perhaps the moon. Another work complete, still no reason why. Subroutines were in the background, compiling the data, searching for meaning, for light in the darkness. What my hands do with the brush, the sponge, the paint, is a distant thing, something I merely observe. System. Stable. Event. The chubby man clinks his glass against mine, flashing that venal smile which makes me think I have somehow been cheated. This place is full of light and voices, my work suspended on white walls, signifying much, saying nothing. I sip the wine. It tastes wrong, like this body feels wrong, somehow borrowed. Tiny wheels spin behind my eyes, recording the faces in the room, gauging reactions, analysing what it is about these smears of shade and tone and texture that draws a tear to one eye, a smile to another. As afternoon stretches into evening, small red stickers reading SOLD appear on the title plaques. The chubby man pumps my hand again and again, his palms sweaty and his eyes glazed with some kind of greed I have yet to understand, and it seems to me that this is a good thing. System. Stable. Event. It is one such evening on which strangers gather in my gallery to exchange their cash for my fathomless paintings when I see her. I notice her because she is not there to look at the art, but to look at me. This makes me curious. I am no work of art. She, however, could be. She seems at once bold yet uncertain, fiery yet tempered, like she knows something I should know, but which I do not. Hello, she says, and in this small way we find our beginning. She asks about the paintings, but I calculate that she is not really asking about the paintings. Additional programs come online to interpret her advances and to inform me of what the appropriate human response should be. I invite her to my studio. It is all I can offer, for since arriving here it is all I have ever had. Prior to this, there is only the dark memory of the void that came before. Somehow, in the transit from the place I once called home, a place I barely recall, all remembrance of who I once was has been stripped away. The data remains, stored on great humming memory banks somewhere across the stellar deeps, waiting for my return. Here all I have are my canvases, brushes, oils, tools, a chair, a small table, a fridge large enough for milk, cheese and ice, a mattress and blankets under a window. My studio has few lights, for I prefer the light of the sun to reveal my work. The dark reminds me of the place I do not remember, the place from whence I came. Thus it is that by the low silver of the moon I touch her cheek, brush back her hair, kiss her neck. Thus it is, I come to know her. System. Stable. Event. She works, serving wine to the wealthy tourists who flock to this lakeside village in the middle of nowhere. They come for the view, the fresh air, the food and wine, the water skiing, and to buy my outrageously overpriced art. My sub-processors gather all this data, pass it and store it, searching for patterns of logic in an irrational world. She rides a scooter with saddles on the back. Sometimes I ride with her, clinging to her waist, my legs braced straight to keep our balance, my eyes squinted shut against the rushing wind. I like being this close to her. It feels right, despite the danger. The mountain roads sweep under the scooter's narrow tyres, and we whirl precariously across the face of the world. Later... We stop and rest among the high places and the trees, and take wine from her saddles, although this seems wrong to me, and we drink only enough to taste the vintage. Then we kiss, and skin pressed to skin is warm against the cool mountain air as we seek another, more magical, higher place. System. Stable. Event. She says I shouldn't sleep in the studio. Something about the paint fumes affecting my head. I don't think my layers of silicone data storage can possibly be affected by chemical gases, but I do not tell her this. From what I have observed of this race, were I to reveal my true nature to her, she might very well think me mad. Her small house is not far from the town, a short walk uphill from my studio, the gallery, a bit farther than the boutique restaurant where she works. When first I set foot in her house, I feel comfortable. Everything seems oddly familiar, as if I had seen it somewhere before. Perhaps it is just a place that makes one feel as if they had come home. The table is set for two, everything arranged to suggest the walls had been waiting to receive not just one, but another. The house has been waiting, perhaps, for me. There are no photos, no fragments of life and memory splintering through the walls, glimpsing at a past I can only imagine. There are gaps, however, as though things have been removed, like a past erased. Nor does she have any of my paintings. This makes me sad, though I cannot say why. My paintings mean nothing, so why should I wish them upon anyone? There are shelves of books, tales of strange worlds and distant lands, and a small desk where she sometimes sits and writes, making her own worlds, her own adventures. When I ask to read them, she blushes and shakes her head. They are not ready, she says, not even for me. I do not ask her about the empty rooms, the closed doors. It is summer and we throw wide the double doors onto the veranda, letting the sun pour in until it sets. The lake glistens silver throughout the day, yet I cannot bring myself to stare at it for long. The sight of it brings me pain, as much as a construct such as I might feel pain, and I look instead to the jawing peaks, the spangled dark, where the snow and the utter silence of space chill my bones. She cooks for me, joking that I look like a starving artist, and I need to eat. I laugh as the programmes tell me to, and I do not argue. My system can process human food well enough to maintain the illusion. I engage in the charade, never revealing that I am merely an observer for a distant, higher power. She does not cook well, but I tell her that her food is delicious. This seems to be how these things are done. Her bed is like a dream, a waking illusion of another life, somewhere I have known but could never have known. Her skin is sensual, her body seeding to mine, "'merging with mine like oils on canvas. "'I record this for later analysis, "'wondering what it might mean that she cries while we make love. "'System. "'Query. "'Event. "'I continue to go through the motions of paint and charcoal and brush, "'and the chubby man tells me I'm something of a sensation. "'Out of this world,' he says." which draws an unexpected grin from me. By day I paint, in the evenings I return to her abode. Sometimes she is there, more often she works. I pass my evenings on the veranda as summer dwindles, and more and more often my gaze is drawn from the distant stars to the cold, haunting surface of the lake. Sometimes I walk the promenade, ostensibly to observe the people there, but I find myself inevitably on the promontory overlooking the dark waters. My chest aches, but I know not why. I draw my coat closer about me and turn away and flee. The lake whispers to me as I retreat from its chilling eye. System. Query. Event. For all my efforts to understand these people and their emotions, their fascination with the ephemeral. As summer darkens towards autumn, I am still no closer to achieving full comprehension of this complex beast. They work to earn money, this I understand. Then they waste it on matters of mere moments, food, wine, the pleasures of art or the flesh. It makes no sense. Autumn deepens and the tourists dwindle, a lull between the summer holidaymakers and the skiers who will, apparently, fill the village in winter. I grow weary. The more I ponder the meaninglessness of life, the less I am inclined to paint. I cannot see the point. Little as it matters to me, however, it seems to matter very much to her. So I try, clinging to the task I was sent here to perform, a purpose which grows seemingly more impossible every day. If I cannot understand this woman, this oil to my canvas, How can I be expected to interpret the collective insanity of an entire race spanning countless civilizations? System. Query. Event. Winter. Snow on the ridges and in the streets. A spreading halo of ice on the lake. A giant pupil contracting as it tries to focus, to hypnotize me, to draw me in. I can no longer sit on the veranda with the doors flung wide, for this aggravates her. In summer she wishes the place cold, in winter she prefers it warm. Another human mystery I cannot fathom. As if life is imitating the seasons, she grows cold. Sometimes she yells at me, because a whole day might go by and I haven't painted a stroke. Because she comes home late from work and I haven't cooked for her because she says she's just trying so damned hard and getting nowhere. This time she leaves and slams the door, and I do not see her again until it is, perhaps, too late. System. Alert. Event. It has been four days since she left. I have not been to my studio. I cannot explain this inertia. I sit at her small table watching the snow flurry without, watching the lake contract to a blind eye, staring white at the grey expanse above. Though I have no physical need to eat, this fleshy form has grown into its habits, and I drag myself to the kitchen to find sustenance. This is a most lonely endeavour. I am forced to turn on lights. In their hard incandescence I am confronted by my own visions. In the intervening months... Some of my works have made their way into our home. Her favourites, as she has had her pick from my studio before the gallery man takes the lion's share to sell. It has given me pleasure to see her smile, or ponder, or sigh, and sometimes I have seen a tear glisten in her eye. In this harsh artificial light the paintings look gaudy, inane, macabre. They do not speak to me, their creator, as they speak to some. Art is something I do, not something I understand. I do not know why my forgotten masters gave me this talent, this power, to reduce a rational person to a fool blathering over arcs of colour. These images, fragments of nothing, are pale reflections of other people's lives. I now understand that those who see them invest them with meaning, and this gives them value. I wonder what it is about the painting hanging here in the kitchen that catches her attention. Nothing in the data I have gathered to date can account for why this ring of white, fringing arctic blue and fading to blackened spikes in the centre, like some vast gaping moor, should cause her to stare into its depths with such wonder, such horror. They are, after all, no more than reflections of colour, waves of light, frequencies measured and interpreted by the eye so that a primordial inner being might know whether to fight, flee, or feed. It is in this moment of reflection, staring through that white rimmed eye into the glazed dark beyond, that I realise my mistake. I have struggled to quantify that which can only be qualified. I have sought to build statistical data sets and to extrapolate conclusions from the numbers gathered therein, but it is not the numbers that matter. It is the tightness in the chest, the prickle in the eye the creeping sense of dread, these things which cannot be measured or counted, at least not by me, not by the machine that drives me. These are a primitive people. They should not be judged by complex methods, but primitive ones. I may not yet understand, but I grasp how I might understand. I contemplate the dreadful, the unforgivable. Were I home, I would have the means to take this step safely. I could archive a copy of this version of myself so that, should the worst happen, I could return to this last safe moment and restore my being. But there are no memory banks here, no data cache large or complex enough to store the interwoven terabytes that make up my knowledge base, the sum of my experiences, this sense of being. I think of words whispered behind the rims of champagne glasses, how prospective buyers would speak of the soul of the piece, of how the art is more than the sum of its elements. Am I, then, the work of art? And is this essence of all that I am, this thing which cannot be saved, the thing they call the soul? Can a construct such as I even contemplate such a thing? There is a lesson in this. To understand humanity... I must learn to think like them. I must, therefore, learn to think anew, bereft of the tools given me by my masters. And first I must understand myself, not as a machine, but as a man. I stand on a brink, and if I step forth, there may be no going back. Yet I cannot go forward from here. There is only one solution. I must shut down the system. System. Alert. Are you sure you want to shut down? Shutting down will cause you to lose all unsaved data. Please back up your data before proceeding. Warning. Data loss imminent. Critical alert. I ignore the warnings that burn against my retinas. Bile yellow through a haze of blood. I engage the termination protocols. Override the warnings flood the chips with row upon row of zeros, sliding through them like a million billion nothings. The subroutines howl as my processes burn hot. Then they are silent. I can hear the heart thumping in my chest, taste the air on my tongue, the foulness of my mouth. I have not washed in days. I look once more into the white fangs before me. For a moment I think I recognise something there. A place I may once have seen, a terror I fell into, was dragged from. But the moment is fleeting, born of desperation. I run from one painting to the next. Here a heart of golden flame, there an abyss. Over here a flock of faceless birds exploding from an ebony cloud, dark wings taking flight. Perhaps these things were always there, but although I see them now I feel nothing but anguish and an unexpected sense of loss. Only she can tell me. Shelley, that is her name. The word evokes images of salt wind on spray soaked boulders, the tide pulling away from a beach rattling with ancient sands, the roll of sand dunes like the curve of her hips, her breasts. I must find her. I must learn what the paintings mean to her, must know why she cried when we made love, must know why she felt she had no choice but to leave me alone. I pull my coat around me and step out into the night, hurrying down the twisting village streets. I have no car. I have never asked why, for I have always been able to walk anywhere I needed to go. Now I wonder if that might be important. I know where she works. I will go there. It is late, but I must try. The route will take me past my studio. I will wish it did not. I stop as I turn a corner. There are lamps on in the upper story of the building where my studio is. I would not have left them burning, for I only work by the light of the sun. Then I see her scooter parked on the street. There are bottles in the saddle, half full, like she would bring home to us to sample and then to talk and laugh. Perhaps she is up there now, studying my incomplete works, trying to comprehend them as I have been trying to comprehend them, in order to comprehend me. I start up the staircase that clings to the side of the building, going quietly so as not to startle her. As I grasp the handle, I hear a sound that causes me to pause. Crying. I should go in, but I do not. The sound of her tears holds me spellbound. They should, I know be lad with meaning, sorrow, grief, loss, perhaps even a sad kind of joy. But the logic circuits that I have so recently shut down seem to somehow persist, and I can only relate her tears to one thing, to the only times she has ever cried since I have known her. Then I hear a man's voice, soothing, and my fears are confirmed. I do not know why this cuts me as it does, for, like so much... Pain remains a blank canvas, a mystery I cannot unravel. But it doesn't matter anymore. I realize that she is no longer mine. My only hope of understanding myself was here, in an embrace which has forsaken me. I cannot confront her. I was sent here not as a warrior, but as an observer, an analyst, and I have seen all I want to see of this world. The time has come for me to return to where I came from. I have abandoned the safety of my nanoprocessors and data caches, and am now doomed to haunt this hollow shell, stricken with the burden of humanity yet devoid of the wisdom required to interpret the world. Bereft, I am cast to the wind. I cannot even try to capture these wordless new feelings in paint, for my art has been stolen from me. I descend the stairs, every tread drawing me deeper into an abyss of my own making, for where there is a soul then perhaps there is also indeed this hell of which they speak, this swirling that churns me from within, all fiery reds and icy blues. I stop at the curb, by her scooter leaning on its stand. I look at the bottles in the saddles, wonder if she has been riding with him, whoever he is, riding to the high places to drink and talk and laugh and make love. I wonder at her boldness, that she ought to choose this place, my place, to consummate her treachery. I run my hand over the cold metal, the rubber of the handlebars. The key is in the ignition. She never takes it out. I've never ridden the scooter as more than a passenger, yet I know how. There is much I know without knowing how I know. I swing my leg over the seat and start the engine. It hums like a sewing machine at rest in the stillness of the winter night. A peak of rage claims me, the first truly human thing I've felt since I arrived here. I hurl first one, then a second bottle against the building's façade. Smashing glass rains on the cobbles, the walls painted in an explosion of red, blood-spattering stone, my final masterpiece. I open the throttle, jump the curb, and squeal around into the street. As I speed away, I imagine I hear a window opening, imagine I hear my name called over the scooter's machine-gun whine. The night is black, my vision awash of red. The narrow winding roads are slick with ice as I race down through the village. I careen wildly, defying the laws of physics as my ancient people defied those laws to send me here across the dark of space. I can no longer make these calculations in my head now that the system is gone. All I have is the tug of gravity, the skid of the tyres, the black of the sky, the sheen of distant stars reflecting off the face of the lake, that white eye staring heavenward, that place where I arrived, gazing forever into the place from whence I came. The broad expanse of the promenade opens before me, lit by frosty pyramids suspended beneath streetlights. For a moment there is nothing but air under the tyres, The soft caress of wind, the engine shrill as the resistance of road and rubber vanishes. Then the scooter hits the ice. The wheels slide from under me and I am thrown sideways. I hear a clatter of metal and a coughing as the engine floods, the light raking across the windswept snow. Things hurt. I get to my feet in spite of the pain. My void pod is here beneath the ice sheet. I will find it and return home and deal with the consequences when I get there. The prospect of freezing water does not concern me. I am, after all, only a construct fashioned after this human animal. I can survive the vacuum of space, so mere water poses me no danger, even if it might kill a mortal creature. Lights sweep the snow, white and red and blue. I stagger on towards the centre of the lake, where the ice is thinnest, towards the eye that stares. Richard! I pause at the sound of my name – her voice – but I do not turn. We have nothing left to say. I continue walking, vaguely aware that I am dragging one leg and that it is excruciating. Pain receptors sending signals down redundant digital pathways, I remind myself. Nothing more. Warnings that this shell is in danger, but the void pod can heal me easily enough. I must break the ice. Richard! I risk a glance behind me. Emergency vehicles have swarmed the promenade ablaze with swirling lights. Lines of tourists have gathered to see the crazy drunk man stumbling across the ice, leaving a trail of blood in his wake. I wonder if it would make a good painting, and realise that I have evolved somehow. I have become the paint, turned the world into my canvas. I see her edging down the snowy bank with uniformed officers, policemen maybe, or firemen. Richard! she calls again. I cannot see her face, but I can imagine her eyes, that haunted look of the traitor caught in the act of betrayal. I drag myself more agonising steps towards the sanctuary of the thin ice. Miss, no! I turn to see Shelley running towards me. Someone reaches out to stop her. Fails. A dull crack echoes through the ice sheet. Richard, stop! Please! Somewhere behind her, men are doing things with ladders and ropes. But all I see is Shelley, her cheeks tear-streaked, her eyes puffy. Come off the ice, Richard. It's not safe. I'm not Richard, I reply. I'm going home. You are home. This is your home. It always has been. You haven't been well for a little while, not since... This is where you belong. Here with a... With me. I pause. I can hear the dull groaning of the ice, the lake's hunger. Turn back. You can't follow me where I'm going. My eyes dart to the stars. She takes another step forward, reaching out. Her eyes search mine, and I see her brow knit as she makes a decision. Listen carefully, she says. You think you know what's happening, but you don't. You can't leave now. The time's not right. She too casts a furtive glance at the stars. Do you understand? I stare at her. How can you possibly know? There's no time to explain. We must get off the ice before it breaks up. I am aghast at the revelation. My teeth are suddenly chattering. You, do you remember where we came from? I can't ever seem to picture it clearly. I must know. This is why I am here. I try. Every time I paint, but it's such a long way from here. Such a long time ago. Shelley might have choked back a sob. I'm not sure. I'm no longer sure of anything, except that my leg is dissolving into pain with every passing minute. It's all in the past now, she manages to whisper. We can't go back. Somehow I know that she means more than she is saying, in that way that humans layer all their words with meaning, like brushstrokes blurring together. The ice sheet grinds and moves. The eye of the lake is broken, a pool of jagged shards splintering slowly across its pupil, revealing the darkness beneath, the deep, awful truth. Something has gone terribly wrong. We are trapped on this world, refugees from across the void, lost in this place of chaos and sorrow. All we have is each other. If we can't go back, I say, then what purpose is there in going forward? All we can do is move on. "'We're running out of time, Richard.' Shelley is struggling to keep her eyes on me "'and not the shifting ice. "'I can see the terror pulling tight across her brow, "'and as if a curtain has been pulled from my eyes, "'I see through her deceit. "'I see her fear, her humanity, "'and I understand it like a kick in my viscera. "'If she is indeed one of my kind, "'then she should have nothing to fear from the water.' As another crack resonates through the ice, I think of the books on her shelves, of the laptop where she sits and weaves fictions out of nothing. She did not come to me because she has no fear of dying, as I have no fear of dying. She came because she cannot bear to see me lost, and she will lie to me if that is what it takes to bring me back from this final ledge. Yet I cannot comprehend how this fits with her betrayal, with the voice behind the door, the deep yet strangely familiar voice. Richard, come back. I nod slowly. Whatever she may have done, she came here hoping to save me. At the very least I owe it to her to explain the truth of who I am and of where I come from. My arm over her shoulder, we limp towards the strobing lights. I have been a fool, and my eyes burn with that knowledge as my feet drag across the ice, the water swirling beneath us, so terribly close. Then the world capsizes. For a moment there is a slash of white sliding up and over the black well of stars, speckled red with blood and the siren lights, and we are sliding. I hear Shelley cry out, her hand torn from mine. My own scream is choked by the blinding pain of freezing water. I flail in darkness. I have been here before, trapped, drowning, Suck down to the hungering depths of the lake. My lungs burn, as once they burned before. My ears filled with the roar of the dying engine. The taste of vomit and alcohol swirling around my head. Small voices crying out in the darkest pools of memory. Tiny stars painting arcs of bright and terrible incandescence across the void. Then I inhale more water, and the world turns white. I do not see the men and women in their thick dry suits who rush into the lake. I don't feel their hands dragging me clear of the water, or the hard embrace of the promenade as I am dumped ashore. I only know that I am still alive when I cough up shards of ice from my lungs. I shiver uncontrollably, and feel somewhat less immortal than I did minutes before. Get him out of here! I am draped with blankets and bundled onto a stretcher. Craning my neck, I look for Shelley, but do not see her. There are boats on the water, searchlights sweeping the shattered ice. She cannot die, I tell myself, over and over. If I say it often enough, it might be true. My vision sweeps over the faces in the crowd, strange as all, all but one. For some reason... I remember him as doctor. His was the voice behind the door. I don't want the truth to suddenly be so plain, as clear and sharp as winter ice. There is nothing at the bottom of the lake but skeletons and dead cars. I remember now and wish I did not. No, I mumbled through blue lips. No, no. The ambulance paints the darkness in warbling sirens and strobing red. The ice has melted from the lake by the time I can walk again. It has moved on from what happened that night. I return to my studio. In the sun's harsh light, I regard a blank canvas. I mix paint, primer brush, midnight blue. The brush hangs poised, ready to transport me through the lens of oil and light. I now understand our home, with its empty rooms and closed doors, and what they contain. I know why we keep them locked and dark. Perhaps in the mystery of unravelling colours, of night sky swirling through water and ice and tears, I will find a way to put those ghosts to rest. When the sun descends, I will still be staring past the paint, into that blind eye the canvas is all i have left bloodied stained stripped clean and hung out to dry as the room falls into shadow so i will drink the tea she has made me and stare up through a broken shell of shattered ice past the distant stars as the light strobe the black searching again and again and again for those soul bright points of light who have taken wing into the darkness.
1: There you go, don't forget. copyright is Dan's. Dan, sir, big thank you. And Dan also mentioned as well that him and Grant are in this kind of part of a Kickstarter. Their stories are going to be in a new Kickstarter anthology if this Kickstarter anthology gets underway. So it'd be really nice. If you kind of go over there, it's currently it's 75% funded. You know what I mean? That's what I love about these Kickstarters. Just getting them done, you know, walk the fire, was down to the nail if it was going to succeed or not. And, you know, I guess thanks to Starship's over, you know, putting a shout out and other people putting a shout out, it got itself through, you know, past the finishing line. So it'd be nice to see this one get get past the finishing line as well i'll just mention what it's about this is what dan was saying it's a story wrote in collaboration with grant as part of a kind of steampunk anthology which is currently included in this kickstarter campaign he says like i mentioned there the campaign has five days to go and currently 75 percent a little boost from sf listeners might just kind of pass it over I've got the details, I've got the link. He says, the project is both for the anthology of short stories called Ministry Protocol, based on the award-winning Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences universe and a steampunk role-playing game based on Fate Core tabletop systems from Galileo Games. He says, it, Dan says, it's a very exciting project and both him and Grant and those running the, kind of, the Kickstarter would love to see it happen. And like I say, it'd be fantastic as well. So I'll put a link on. Please support Dan and Grant, try and get that little anthology going. Next up is Jimmy with his Synthetic Voices, delving into the world of audio, science fiction, fantasy, and anything in between. Jimmy!
0: Hello again, Sofanauts. I'm Jimmy Rogers, and this is Synthetic Voices. For a little over a year now, I've been combing through as many free speculative audio fiction stories as I can find, and sharing my favorites on my monthly podcast, Synthetic Voices. If you'd like to subscribe to the dedicated feeds, search Synthetic Voices on iTunes. Even leave a review if you're game. And if you'd like to see the show notes for this segment, just go over to sciencesmagic.com where you'll see a link. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into the top picks from May 2013. First up is Good Hunting by Ken Liu. It was featured in Escape Pod, episode 394, and was about an hour long. Oddly, this is the second episode in a short span where I've mentioned ghoul hunters. In Ken Liu's story, we follow a young man apprenticed to his father, a ghoul hunter, as they chase down a clever demon. After the initial action, we see a world changing as China makes life harder for ghoul hunters and supernatural beings alike. I have to admit that I would have liked to see the story end there, but the tale continues into an elaborate, steam-aged second act that helps close the story's circle. Maybe I'm just an old fogey who likes one speculative element laid out at a time, either ghoul hunting in China or steampunk, but I still find the story undeniable, and so you find it here in this month's top picks. Next up is The Traditional by Maria Davana Headley. It was featured in Lightspeed Magazine's May issue and was about a half an hour long. Fair warning, this story is a bit on the gory side. It's a genuine and heartfelt love story from after the fall of civilization. The desperate conditions and constant risk of death will keep you on the edge, but the partnership between the leading man and woman will sustain you throughout. The first half of the story was tough for me to get through, but I realize now that this was because it represented the first few years of their relationship, which is really the tough part anyway, apocalypse or no. The story's finale was satisfying to me, and might even make you proud of our main characters. Another great story from last month was Gigmarks by Ed Ferrara. It was featured in Pseudopod, episode three three three. That's halfway to 666, I don't know if that means anything. And it was about 40 minutes long. Subcultures often make good characters in speculative fiction. Why invent the weird when it already exists? Gig Marks looks into the life of a too old professional wrestler who has yet to make it big and is still touring local gyms and half filled arenas in the middle of nowhere. His reluctant mentorship of a young wrestler unwittingly exposes him to a side of the supernatural, known only to those with a dark episode in their past. I won't say too much more about this evocative and chilling tale of horror, except to say that there are consequences when you want a bit of color in your act. The next story on my list is Soul Catcher by James Patrick Kelly. It was featured in Clark's World Magazine's May issue and was about 30 minutes long. While a lot of geeky people swing that way, I rarely see elements of BDSM in speculative short fiction. This story not only contains a master-slave relationship, but being set in a far future and involving non-humans, the story allows us to see a kind of parody of how such relationships are viewed by less understanding relatives. The plot, One of Revenge, is fairly compelling and the macabre soul-catcher itself has an impressive creepiness factor. But I found the characters and their relationships to be far more interesting than the speculative elements in the rest of the story. If you do think about alternative lifestyles occasionally, I hope you'll take the time to analyze this story with more than a single pass-through. Next is The Man Who Drew Cats by Michael Marshall Smith. It was featured in the Drabblecast, episode 283, and was about 48 minutes long. This story reminds me of a slightly darker Ray Bradbury short. In a quaint and removed village, occasionally frequented by tourists, a mysterious painter comes to town and settles in among the locals. He paints impossibly beautiful landscapes out on the plaza and befriends the local children. He also draws cats on the ground with chalk. The fact that said cats might seem a little too real or might have a taste for human flesh is not even the most memorable part of this piece. Instead, the author's vibrant descriptions of village life and village drama make the scenes come alive, just like the man-eating cats. My final top pick this month is The Night Whiskey by Jeffrey Ford. It was featured in Starship Sofa, episode 291, and was about 50 minutes long. Another story of backwater magic, here we see a bizarre tradition, played out for yet another generation, of backwater townsfolk. A strange brew made from a local berry provides its drinker with a vision of the other side. The primary side effect for those lucky enough to drink the night whiskey is that of climbing a tree. The story follows a young man who has been trained in the art of removing said climbers after their visions are complete. However, sometimes more comes down from the trees than just the people who first climbed up. I will forgo my regular editorial this month to bring you a little extra fiction that warrants mention, but doesn't really fit into the normal podcast format. First off, if you've never read Cory Doctorow's Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, you're in luck. Since the middle of March, Dr. O has been rereading the book on his podcast to celebrate its 10th anniversary. Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom was actually assigned to me in a college course about how technology will fundamentally change humanity. In it, Dr. O describes a carefree, post-human, post-singularity, and post-scarcity world where people are still people. It's magical, it's free, and it's in the author's own voice. What more could you ask for? Another longish piece, though not quite a novel, is The Shadow Over Innsmouth by H.P. Lovecraft. Read aloud by Mike Bennett on the SFF Audio podcast, this classic tale of The Deep Ones will make a strong addition to your Lovecraftian education. It's three hours long, so buckle in and stick around for the learned commentary afterward. Always a sure thing with SFF Audio. I personally enjoyed this story a whole lot, but be warned that most of the gripping bits are toward the middle and the end. Consider the rather info-dump-heavy beginning an investment into your Lovecraftian degree. Keeping up with the horror theme, Tales to Terrify has been clever enough to grab all of the Bram Stoker Award nominees this year and have them narrated over two recent episodes. My two favorites were in the second episode, But I will add that, collectively, I was a tad disappointed with the offering this year. I don't read a lot of horror, especially compared to those likely on the Stoker Award committee, but I found the stories less engaging than the usual fare on Tales to Terrify. Now, whether that is a compliment to the editors of the podcast or an insult to the committee, I don't know. But I invite you to try out the stories yourself and share your thoughts in the comments. Lastly, there are two podcasts that have recently branched out into the paid content world, and I wanted to give them a little airtime. The first is the No Sleep Podcast, which offers creepy tales from the No Sleep subreddit on reddit.com. They have decided to start offering a long paid episode feed and a shorter, but still very generous, free episode feed. The host and producer, David Cummings, cites rising production and narration costs as the main reason for the change. I believe him too, as the podcast sounds better than most of the more professional-quality fiction podcasts I listen to regularly. Definitely take a listen and consider contributing, if you enjoy a good spine-tingling. The second podcast is none other than our longtime favorite, The Drabblecast. Norm Sherman's peerless podcast will stay free as ever, but he has decided to start adding more content to the B-Sides feed, which previously ran extra stories and audio dramas that couldn't fit on the main show. Now that feed will be available only to paid subscribers. If you're already a likely subscriber to the Drebbelcast, I think it's a good way to get a little something in return for your hard-earned bucks. Right now, you can even get a free taste of the B-sides with the Phil K. Dick story, The Eyes Have It. Our first feature section this month is Just Add Humans. Here are three stories of futuristic technologies, and how they will affect the humans they touch. The first featured story is Subversion by Elizabeth R. Adams. It was featured on Escape Pod, episode 398, and was about 30 minutes long. In science fiction and fantasy, we see stories of clones, horcruxes, and doppelgangers all the time. This clever short looks into another kind of double. Our protagonist splits off many versions of himself more like extra limbs than complete clones, to improve multitasking ability. But things don't go quite as he planned. The next story is Tacky Psyche by Andy Duddock. It was featured in Clarksworld Magazine's May issue and is about 15 minutes long. If the multiple version strategy doesn't appeal to you, maybe you'd like to try playing with time itself. This story really got me thinking. In it, we follow a man with a brain on the fritz. Watch as he flips back and forth between overclocking, seeing time pass extremely slowly, and underclocking, seeing time pass extremely fast. For the writers out there, it might inspire you to create your own time dilation story. The last featured story is A Gun for Dinosaur by L. Sprague de Camp. This was featured in Escape Pod episode 397 and was about an hour and 15 minutes long. Staying on the time tangent, we see another story extremely reminiscent of the work of the late Ray Bradbury. Unlike A Sound of Thunder, however, which is concerned with accidental changes to the timeline during a dinosaur hunt, A Gun for Dinosaur is more of a safari tale. We follow a mixed band of brash hunters trying to bag the biggest game of all time. Their overpowered guns and their oversized quarry keep the story suspenseful, but the characters themselves are what drew me in and made the ending so satisfying. Fans of the Bradbury short will perhaps feel another level of kinship to this tale, especially in how the story ends. Next is a story I'd like to feature alone. It's a dark, powerful story called Little Girl Down the Way by Lawrence Santoro. It was featured in Tales to Terrify episode number 70, and it is about 30 minutes long, though the episode is longer than that. Rather than sum up this story as I do with so many others, I'd like to share how this one made me feel. It is dark and frightening, and it is read expertly by the author Lawrence Santoro. His reading sent shivers down my spine, but also made me feel an intense feeling of discomfort and vulnerability. A strong warning, the text essentially describes an unfathomable level of child abuse. Normally, I toss out such stories as fast as I can, especially in the horror genre, where they are far too plentiful. But this one drew me in and earned, I think, the discomfort it caused. I won't even say I like this story, but I definitely recommend it to people who can stomach the subject matter. Also, I strongly recommend listening to Santoro's own thoughts on the story, which frankly provide about half the reasons to listen to it at all. Our final feature section this month is four whimsical stories. The first featured story is The Giant Who Dreamed of Summer by Jess Hislop. It was featured in Cast of Wonders, episode 78, and was about 30 minutes long. One reason I consistently listen to Cast of Wonders is their impressive ability to find beautiful or thoughtful stories that I would love to share with a child. This is a story about an ice giant doomed to walk on frozen tundras or risk melting. His desire to taste summer is so strong you can feel the imagined warmth ripple over you. I loved how the story ended as well, after he had endured so much tragedy. The next story is Leaving the Dead by Dennis Danvers. It was featured on Lightspeed Magazine's May issue and was about 50 minutes long a boy, a girl, and an apocalypse. I really enjoyed the tone of this one. There is no immediate conflict in this story. It's about how two people and a friendly dog shake off the shock of a global catastrophe and move on with their lives. Their viewpoints seem genuine, and their outlook stays brighter than you might expect. Next is The Clockwork Trollope by Deborah Doyle and James D. MacDonald. It was featured in Beneath Cecil Skies, episode 120, and was about half an hour long. This clever tale follows two upper-class gentlemen as they try to eradicate prostitution with steam-age technology. The narrative style will fool you into thinking that this tale was written at the turn of the century, but it was actually published this year. As you might expect, things don't go quite as planned for the two industrious gentlemen, but it makes for an interesting story. And lastly, The Great Zeppelin Heist of Oz, by Ray Carson and C.C. C. Finlay. It was featured in Podcastle, episode 259, and was about 50 minutes long. I don't often focus on the narrators of the stories I list, perhaps a shame. In this story of Oz, the narrator was the star. Nick Pottle brings the great and terrible Oz to life in all of his flim flaming brilliance. Originally a production of Brilliance audiobooks for John Joseph Adams and Douglas Cohen's anthology Oz Reimagined, New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond, this reading does a nice job representing that most famous of fantasy worlds. Well, that just about does it for Synthetic Voices this month. Now that I've got a berth on the good ship's sofa, I figure we should find a home for synthetic voices as well. Adam and his cheapskates have claimed the coach class compartments, for instance. Maybe the radio room? Though that might be a little cramped. How about the auditorium? If you have a good idea, or maybe just want to say hi, drop me a line at jimmyatscientismagic.com or visit the site for more contact info. Remember to support your favorite audio fiction podcasts, including Starship Sofa of course with either one-time or monthly subscriptions. All of the music used in this episode is distributed under an extensive series of Creative Commons licenses which you can find on the show notes page at sciencesmagic.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next month.
1: Jim Sue, what going to say a big thank you. And thank you for picking out one of Starship Sofas. But it- it's all about the other stories, so do have a look out for them as well. Next up is the next bit of main fiction, Main Fiction 2, Better Phones by Grant Stone. Now, Grant Stone's fiction has appeared in Strange Horizons, Shimmer and Andromeda Spaceways In-Flight magazine. And like I mentioned top of the show, he has twice won the Sir Julius Vogel Award. He lives in Auckland, New Zealand, because that's where all his stuff is, he says. Better, better phones first appeared in Andromeda Spaceway's flight in my magazine, whatever it is called, number 56, one after Dardens. So, the Starship Sova is, very proud present, Better phones by Grand Stone. Monday.
4: The three minute warning buzzed on Kerry's phone as he was tucking his daughter in. He was halfway down the hallway before she called for a glass of water. I'll go. Bridget said. Get your shoes on. Love you. Kerry could feel the anticipation already. He sniffed and caught the floral scent of antihistamine. Without it, he wouldn't be able to run at all this time of year. He laced up his running shoes and walked to the end of the drive. The pack ran past a second later, not slowing, although Carl gave him a wave. No time to warm up. Kerry plugged his earphones in and started running, fumbling with his phone to patch in. The runners all had the same app, logging their time, relaying statistics and music over an ad-hoc network. The music faded for a moment. All right, Kerry. Carl was already nearly at the corner, but the network carried his voice, as if he were right there. Better, actually. Post-processing filtered out all the heavy breathing. Carl sounded no different than if they were talking over a pint at the pub. Yeah. Good. Catch up. Some of the runners were able to carry on a conversation the whole run. Kerry's lungs weren't up to that yet. This time of evening was best for running in summer. The sun was still up for a little while yet, although it would be full dark by the time they came back this way. Thick grey clouds were rolling in. Rain, perhaps, before morning. A breeze ruffled what was left of his hair. Kerry cursed. He'd forgotten to bring his cap. Hopefully the rain would hold off until he got back. The first couple of kilometres were always toughest. His muscles complained, his knees his ankles. Somewhere around the one kilometre mark, he would wonder why he did it. But he'd been running a year now, long enough to know it would pass. The first kilometre was on the streets, which still made Kerry nervous. He didn't trust the cars roaring by, headlights burning his eyes. Steve was up front. After a kilometre, they veered left, across grass to the wooden bridge that marked the entry to the stormways, the sound of their footsteps ricocheting off the nearby houses. Kerry had lived in this part of town for years now, But it wasn't until he started running that he began to notice the stormwater easement. A system of concrete gutters, sitting at the bottom of a slight ravine, lush grass on either side, a paved walking track at the top. The stormways connected with parks and playing fields as well. You'd never notice driving by in a car, but once you hit the bridge, you could run for 15 kilometres or more without ever seeing a major road. The pack elongated on the thin path, Steve in front, as always. The rest of them ran single file or double, spacing themselves out. Kerry trailed behind. The wires from his headphones banged against his arm. He didn't have a wireless set like some of the others. He grabbed the wire and ran it through his fingers like a rosary. Ross fell back to match his pace. It was Ross who had convinced Kerry to start running. Far cheaper than a gym, he said. Far less chance of straining yourself doing a bench press. Ross was Bridget's friend more than Kerry's, but he had seen enough of him over the years to track the change in Ross's shape. Five years ago he'd been pear-shaped and a chain smoker. Now he was thin, muscular, and didn't look anywhere near forty-five. We're going up the back tonight, Ross said, right after the tunnel. Up for it? Sure, Kerry said, trying not to let his disappointment show. Up the back meant hills. He hated hills. VOOSE! Steve yelled. Kerry's earbuds echoed as the other runners took up the call. The pack split, half going high to the left of the path, as close to the fence as they could get, the other half going right, down to the river. Steve went further, splashing through the trickle in the drain, and up the bank on the other side. They're early tonight, Ross said. Kerry took the left, ducking under the branches of a pine tree. The voos came around the corner, five of them, each in matching blue nylon shorts and white singlets. They were tall, the smallest of them seven feet. They ran barefoot elongated toes ending in sharp, pointed nails, scratching on the concrete. Steam rose from their nose flaps. They passed in a blur. White noise burst over the network. Shit, Cal said, tearing his phone out of his armband. Without slowing, he glared at his phone and threw it in the river. That's the third one this year. Kerry looked at his own phone. It had rebooted, but seemed to be starting up okay. Another few seconds, and it should be back on the network. The conversation was already underway when his phone reconnected. Why they let them out with those things at all? Just better phones, you... Is it the phones, or is it them? There was only the voice channel. Carl's phone had been supplying the music. A few minutes later, a bluegrass banjo started playing, accompanied by groans from the other runners. Oh, come on, Steve said. You know you love it. Shit, Carl shouted again. Wednesday. You're going to be late, Bridget said, and closed the door behind him. Kerry squinted up at the clouds and smoothed down his cap. An elderly Chinese couple were walking a tiny dog just before the bridge. The pack rang single file, shoes banging. Kerry, bringing up the rear, waved. The elderly man smiled back. It's got twice the storage, and it's less than half the weight. Carl had gone out and brought a new phone the day after his had been nuked by the voos. Carl worked in finance and had a new car every year. The conversation had been nothing but phones the whole run. Kerry checked his phone was secure in its armband. He had noticed a tiny tear in the strap yesterday, and he had spent an hour carefully stitching it. He looked at the runners, still in single file, shoulders already covered in sweat that glistened in the setting sun. Taking up running at 40? He wondered what his younger self would have made of that. he had never been athletic. Still couldn't catch a ball to save himself. They came upon something else he had never seen from his car. Right in the middle of suburban Auckland, someone had decided to set up an American football field. It was deserted, as always. Kerry had never seen anyone play on it. The runners left the path and cut across the 20-yard line, then took the dirt track down under the main road. Water from the pipes above made footing treacherous. Kerry looked down, carefully picking his way over the slimiest-looking spots. The path ran around the large evangelical church, "'around the back of more houses. "'The right side of the track changed here. "'The small indent gave way to a proper gully, "'the water only just visible between bushes and small trees. "'Another corner, and the gully cleared out a little, "'a proper stream now, the water running around a series of rocks. "'Kerry wondered if any of the local kids had tried fishing down there. "'Steve pulled a torchbud from his pocket "'and wrapped the elastic band round his head. "'The path ran under Aviemore Drive here. "'The tunnel was divided into two parts— "'separated by a waist-high barrier. "'On the left, the path, uneven and unlit. "'On the right, a a one-and-a-half-metre drop down to the stream. "'The light from Steve's torch bounced off the roof of the tunnel. "'The path veered right over a stone bridge "'and then up a hill beneath pine trees. "'The path was unpaved here. "'Rocks and tree roots split the earth, "'covered with a thin layer of shingle "'and a thicker layer of pine-tree needles. Kerry kept his eyes down, careful of his footing. "'Voose!' Steve called. The other runners groaned in frustration. On the other side of the hill, the path curved back on itself. Kerry could see the voose runners through the trees, at least ten of them. One runner was well out in front, running at a remarkable pace, even for a voose. Then more trees blocked his view again. They'd be on them in a few seconds. Kerry needed to get a good distance away from the path before they came through. There wasn't any room for him to keep running. At the left of the path, the bank had given way and crumbled into the water below. Kerry got as close as he dared, wrapping one arm around a tree. ''Shit!'' someone called over the phones. ''Maybe Carl. It was hard to tell. The channel was suddenly full of voices. Something had happened, just around the corner. Kerry peered around the tree but couldn't see anything. The voos rounded the corner and ran past. Kerry clapped a hand over his phone, hoping he was far enough away to avoid it getting nuked. They ran single file. One of them didn't even bother taking the bridge, just jumped the gap.'' When the last one had passed, Kerry got back to the track, but stopped as soon as he got round the corner. Don't touch him, Steve said. The runners were stopped, crowded around something on the path. The bastards, Carl said. They just left him. The bastards. A voos lay on the ground, breathing, but not moving. One leg was scraped from knee to ankle, the wound full of dust and gravel. There was a bruise showing on the voos's long head above its right eye. "'What happened?' Kerry asked. "'Shit, man, it was brutal,' Steve said. "'This guy was way out in front, but he tripped on something and went down, "'and then the other voos. "'They just ran right over him,' said Carl, earning a glare from Steve. "'Bastards didn't even stop to see if he was okay. "'There wasn't any conscious thought in it. "'Kerry broke the circle of runners, knelt down by the voos, "'and placed a hand on his shoulder. "'Hey, mate, you okay? "'Kerry's hand tingled where he made contact with the voos's skin.' Watch out, man, Carl said. You okay, mate? Kerry asked again. A few seconds later, the voos opened his eyes. Kerry helped him up. The voos climbed unsteadily to his feet, leaning on Kerry for support. The others were still hanging back, looking at Kerry in shock. The voos' hand lay heavily on Kerry's shoulder. Can you walk? Kerry asked. Yes, said the voos, the word so strangely accented it was hard to make out. A trickle of blood ran from the cut on the voos' leg. Kerry thought about tearing a strip off his shirt and binding it, but he was already covered in sweat. It might be better just to let it breathe. The voos just stood there, still leaning on Kerry's shoulder. He doesn't look well, eh, said Steve. No shit, said Kerry. They just ran over him like he wasn't there, Carl said. None of the runners moved. They're waiting for something, Kerry realised. These men... All of them over 40, balding, important jobs and six-figure salaries, were waiting for someone to tell them what to do. Come on, Kerry said to the Voose. They started walking, slowly, back along the track. The runners watched them go. The emergency medical centre was a couple of kilometres away. they just need to turn right at the church and follow the road. The Voose's legs were stiff, making his pace even slower. A large bruise was forming on the left side of his face, and one eye had puffed closed. His breath came in hisses; his chest rising and falling rapidly. Kerry didn't know if that was normal or not. The closest he'd ever been to a voose was watching them run past. He tapped at his phone a few times, but it didn't respond. It had been a present for his fortieth. Kerry wouldn't be able to just go out and buy another one. The sky was completely dark now. They took the tunnel under the road slowly. Kerry taking care to stay away from the guardrail and the drop down to the creek. The Voose didn't talk. Kerry didn't know if it was because he wasn't well enough to speak, or if he didn't know much English. They followed the trail in silence until Kerry began to feel the Voose's hand slipping. Almost there, he said, grabbing it, trying to pull the heavy Voose up straight. The Voose was far heavier than him. If he fell, Kerry wouldn't be able to pull him up. The sound of the Voose's breathing had changed. There was a rasping tone to it now that sounded like an asthma attack. The voos' whole body shuddered with each breath. Kerry wondered if Bridget was worried. He tapped on his phone again, knowing it wouldn't respond. He'd driven this road hundreds of times. By car, he'd be at the medical centre in less than five minutes. He would have tried to flag down one if there'd been any traffic, but none came past. The streetlights gave an ugly yellow glow. It was just another run, he told himself. When he'd first started training, the thought of running for ten minutes was impossible. He remembered looking at his phone as the timer ticked over to nine minutes, lungs bursting, legs quivering. The seconds and that last minute were longer than the other nine combined, but he wouldn't stop, not until the timer ticked over. He ran by himself back then. Nobody would know if he stopped, but he still kept going. There was something in that, he thought, some secret he'd been taught about himself. The lights of the medical centre made his eyes water. A nurse came out from behind the desk to help steady the voose, calling for help as she did. A couple of seconds later she had him lying on a gurney, a hissing mask over his face. He looked up at Kerry. Thanks, he said. The Voose reached a hand up and brushed Kerry's arm. Kerry felt a humming in his bones and sudden warmth. It remained long after the Voose had removed his hand. The nurse wheeled him away and he was gone. A large TV above the reception was showing the evening news. The sports segment, so it had to be at least 10.30. An hour and a half to cover a couple of kilometres. That didn't seem right, but there it was. Kerry answered the nurse's questions best he could, but there wasn't much to say. He'd been running, fallen over. No, he didn't know the voos' name or address. He didn't mention the way the other voos had run over him, or how Carl and Steve and the others had stood there like fools. Is he going to be okay? The nurse had been typing details into an ancient computer. Now she looked up at him. Her hair was tied up in a bun, but strands had come loose. He will be, now, she said. They'll probably take him through the critical at Middlemore, but that's just a precaution. It's ridiculous. They know they shouldn't be out running this time of year. It's the pollen from the behutakawa trees. They get themselves all loaded up with steroids and think they're back on their home world. He's the third one I've seen this month. So it's just hay fever? The nurse shook her head. No, just about it. Voos don't get the sniffly nose and watery eyes. The pollens aren't just irritating to them. They're toxic. Poor guy must have missed his steroids this morning, or maybe just got unlucky. You saved his life. Kerry didn't know what to say. He pulled his phone from his armband and thumbed the power again. Nothing. How about you? The nurse said, looking at the dark stain on Kerry's shirt where the voose had been leaning... Are you injured i'm I'm fine, Kerry said. Only can I use your phone Friday, Daddy Stacy called from her bedroom. There's a tall man standing in the driveway. Kerry closed the door of the dishwasher and walked to his daughter's room. Stacy was out of bed, her legs visible under the closed curtains. The Voose was standing in their driveway. Go back to bed, honey, he said. The Voose watched Kerry walk down the path. The swelling around his eye had gone down, but there was still some bruising. The Voose was wearing running gear, though he didn't look like he was in any state for exercise. He had a large pad taped to one shoulder and another on his leg, both stained with blood. A Ben 10 backpack dangled from his hand. The Voose slowly raised a hand in greeting. Kerry? You know my name? The Voose nodded. I asked, at hospital, had to know, to thank. No thanks required. I just did what any human he was about to say but stopped himself. I just did what anyone would have done. Except the others the voos was running with, or Steve or Carl. Kerry hadn't heard from any of them since Wednesday. His phone was nuked, so they couldn't get them through that. But they knew where he lived. Sorry, the voos said. Your phone. Kerry shrugged. No problem. They're a dime a dozen these days. Unless you're scratching by with a single income and a fat mortgage. The voos reached into the backpack and handed Kerry a small box. For you. It looked like cardboard, but there was a strange waxy feel to the surface, as if it were made out of leaves. It opened with a swish. Inside, sitting on a bed of flower petals, was a phone. A voos phone. Kerry pulled the phone from the box. It buzzed slightly as he touched it, but otherwise did not respond. Ah, said the voose. He took the phone from Kerry and did something on the front, then placed it back in his hand. It knows you now. The screen showed a picture of Buckland's Beach at sunset. Not a picture, Kerry realized, but a live feed. He watched the ferry on its way out of Half Moon Bay. When Kerry touched the screen, it came alive with icons and a handful of words in English. Adapted for human said the Voose, my son, he helped Kerry saw movement at the top of the drive. A small voose peered out from behind the litter box, but ducked back again when Kerry waved. Thank you, Kerry said, his voice quivered, which surprised him. It's only a phone, The Voose nodded and turned to leave. Wait, Kerry called when the Voose was at the top of the drive. What are you doing? Tonight. Nothing. Do you? Kerry looked at the sky. The sun was still well above the horizon. In an hour, maybe. Would you like to run? If he pointed to his own leg, the point where the voos had the blood-stained bandage. If it's okay. The voos smiled. I would like that very much, Kerry. Kerry turned back towards the house. Stacy was still at her window, pressed up against the glass. Bridget was there too. She raised an eyebrow. Kerry went to find his
1: antihistamines. There you go, don't forget. Copyright is Grant's Grant, thank you so much. And Dan, great narrations all round. And like I say, Grant was the 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 guy that kind of. Uh, put his self forward, you know, and I'm so proud of him and so pleased for him that he did that. You know, he kind of got up in, in Australia and accepted the award on behalf of Starship Sofa. And he read out a little speech there. And I just want to kind of mention it again because I think it all ties in. Do you know what I mean? Like, see, I was chuffed a bit with Grand for, for doing that. And he's, he wrote this little acceptance speech. And it just fits with, you know, Sofa Con, con what we you know. If, if you get, if you get Starship Sofa... Grant puts it in words, you know, and forgive my narrations because I'm certainly not a Grant Stone narrator or a Dan narrator. that 's I never bloody go there. But I'll, I'll read what Grant wrote as his acceptance speech. You'll notice from my accent that I am not Tony, but I am a member of the crew. Since Tony C. Smith and Kieran O'Carroll started Starship Sover, it has grown into a huge cooperative effort with volunteers from all over the world To all the authors who have kindly let us narrate your stories, thank you. To all the volunteers who have provided narrations, articles, interviews, transcriptions and artwork, thank you. And to everyone everywhere who has listened and enjoyed the show, thank you so much. We are the Starship Sofa. Everybody, thank you. And that, I kind of get, you know, I kind of explain it better. If you get Starship Sofa, that's, you know, the kind of the message. We are like this cooperative. Come over to SofaCon and enjoy the fun. And, you know, just enjoy wheels. You know, I'll never get the conventions. It's the world cons come to London. It ain't going to happen for me. Do you know what I mean? It's right on my doorstep. Well, not right on my doorstep, but it's there. But these things I I don't do. Do you know what I mean? I don't do these kind of things anyways. But it gives you a chance just to get together. Do you know what I mean? Like, say, the kind of the digital age now. It's, it's, it, you can do these sort of things and you can do them from the comfort of your own home and just enjoy what we do in a kind of live environment and just have a laugh as well. You know, some great stories there and some top writers, do you know? So come along to SofaCon. See, tickets are on sale there now until next week. Just like to say, good night from me.
2: Survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... the. sofa. A procedure machine. Shovel set for us. Airlock will be opened in three, 2... 1...